Hello everybody and welcome to the History of Voyager. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very, very much for listening to mine. Okay, long-time listeners will notice that I'm doing oral history now, cleverly disguised as a podcast. You might be asking why in the world I'm doing oral history, cleverly disguised, as a podcast. Well, I think we're living through historical times, and I've thought that for quite a while, essentially. My guest for this episode is a return guest. Her name is Nikki Hafner. She talks about her homeless uh, situation in the state of California. She sent me some data, which is, at this point, woefully out of date. It's from uh, 2009. Um, If anything, what's going on now is more than it was in 2009, not less. In 2009, there were 40 million homeless people in this country. 40 million homeless people. Let's put that in perspective. 40 million people is more than the state of California. It's more than the state of Florida. It's almost as big as Great Britain. It's it's bigger than Argentina. There's more homeless people in this country than there are people who live in Argentina. And that was in 2009. Think about, you know, we're in 2021. Now, I don't currently have hard data for the nation in 2021, but I can tell you that when the eviction moratorium ended, one-fifth of the city of Atlanta's population was undergoing eviction proceedings within two days after that. Think about that. That's a lot of people. Now, I've had a homelessness uh, expert, and she's also a tenant-facing lawyer on this podcast. Um, She's very busy. She was a very busy person before She's a very busy person now. I would absolutely love it if she'd come back. Um, Because I'd love to have her on and get an update from her. I personally believe that this is a catastrophe in our country. You know, I don't know how old some of you are. I don't know how old any of you are. But... um, it's basically impossible now to to find a job without an internet connection. Number one. Number two, as my guest for this episode will go over, there are some jobs that just aren't worth having because you know they don't pay enough to function. They don't pay enough to live on. Um, you know. My personal opinion is that we're dealing with a wage system that, while it wasn't intended for that initially, uh, 
it has become this sort of a, a system for, you know, teenage children living with mom and dad. And there's a whole lot of people that work these jobs that don't that don't come under that, uh, I guess, view of what this is and all like that. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit right now about the Delta variant of COVID. I'm going to do an episode. I haven't cut it yet. I'm cutting it now. I haven't finished. I might actually have to recut it because, you know, the the knowledge on this disease evolves at a at a a staggering rate. You know, one of the symptoms of it being a new disease um, is that, you know, we're all learning things, um, even the experts in this topic. Um, but I will cut a, a COVID disease, a COVID podcast uh, really soon. This is because there's so much new information and I've been reading it. I've been keeping up with it. And it's really hard. It's like nailing Jello to a wall. If I can, if I can use a terrible analogy, it's essentially like you've got these facts, but they keep moving in directions, and it's it's tough to know. It's tough to lock down the literature in terms of percentages or in terms of um, whatever. But it's it's bad. It's it's worse than what what you want to call the, for lack of a better term. Uh, the old-fashioned COVID. Ha, ha, ha. Air quotes. Um, but anyway, so this is Nikki Hafner who talks about um, her homeless experience in California. And she had to uh, immigrate to Canada, which she was able to do because her husband is Canadian. Um, all right, everybody. Um, believe it or not, and I say this all the time, and it's always true, I'm having a good day, and I hope you are too, people, um, I'll talk at you later, alright, bye now. Here we go, alright. Hello everybody, hello everybody, my name is Benjamin Kitchings. You're listening to the History Voyager, a podcast about history and also kind of oral history that is the history of now. So I have with me a returning guest, uh, Nikki Hafner. Nikki, how are you doing tonight? I'm sorry, what was that? How are you doing tonight, Nikki? Oh, I'm doing all right. How are you? Oh, fine, fine. Um, now, you had we had talked earlier. Let me... See if I can move this a little bit better. We had talked earlier, you had alluded about your uh, being homeless homeless or unhoused or however you want to say that. And with with all the – I was reading a little bit of the stuff you were kind enough to send me. And it's amazing that 40 – before the pandemic, so – from 2009, there were 40 million people in this country that were homeless. And by way of 
comparison, there were 9,000 people in Scotland that were homeless. So we're not even talking about them. I mean, the next lowest, the next highest country that I saw was Canada. Yeah. With 250,000 or something like that, which is a lot, but it's 40 million is a, you know, that's drastically different. Nearly 12% of the country. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's a huge number, and everybody wants to paint those people into a particular box. They want to say they deserve it for some reason. Um, they they earned this this thing, and that's not the case. You know, a lot of people who are homeless are are single parents, um, or they have fled uh, domestic abuse. Um, and that's how they ended up that way. Uh, you know, it, it's a, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons that people can can lose their housing. I volunteered, for example, I volunteered at a homeless shelter in Atlanta some some years back, and there was a child um, that I remember tutoring. His mother had been a nurse in New Jersey. And for some reason, and I, I don't know why, but for some reason, she had to leave and she had to she had to come to, you know, she had to leave her situation and she ended up in Atlanta. And, you know, she eventually got a job as a nurse in Atlanta because the nurse nursing is a, you know, I mean, it was it was fairly quickly quick. I only really mentored this child for. I guess about maybe five or six weeks and he had just got, but yeah, to the shelter, but still. Yeah. It's um, not even that, that quick of a turnaround for most people, but for some, they are lucky. They're very lucky. They can get in and out. Um, you know, it just really depends. Right. Well, uh, nursing, at least in the U S nursing is a very much of an in-demand Absolutely. Um, in most places in the medical field, the, most jobs in the medical field are in very high demand. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, yes. Um, let me see if I can maybe put my... Let me see if we can put the Bluetooth back on. Okay. This now occurred to me, our, my Bluetooth is not deciding not to function right now. That's good. <laughs> huh. Okay. So that's a little different. All right. Okay. <clears throat> so why don't we, um, oh, let me kill that. Why don't we get into your story? Uh, okay. If you don't sure. Don't we... Where should I start? So let's, okay. To, to quote, uh, 
Yeah, Sesame Street. Let's start at the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Okay. um, Well, uh, I guess we should probably start with what the definition of homelessness is, because that actually defines... um, a lot of the experiences people go through. Um, So it's typically referred to as a person without a home. This could be a person who who is living on the streets in a tent, in a park. It could be somebody who is living on a a relative's couch or forced to stay in their spare bedroom. It's somebody whose housing is unstable for some reason. That's usually referred to as underhoused. Their housing is unstable. Um, basically, they live, they get to exist at the whim of others. And that has been the definition of homelessness. Um, the first time I found myself homeless um, would have been when I was 16. I thought that I was moving in with my mother into a stable situation. Situation. It turns out we were crashing on somebody's floor. Um, and I, I just sort of rolled with it. I was like, okay, well, this is what we're doing. I'm going to get up and go to school in the mornings and come home and sell coupon books in the evening until, you know, whatever. And then. Okay. Back up a second. Why were you selling coupon books? Th- that was how we made money. Okay. Okay. So my mother had gotten caught up with one of those. It was really a scam, you know. They they just yeah. get you to sell coupon books and then you get a portion of the proceeds supposedly. So we she, she had that going for probably about 4 months before she got hired on with a telemarketing agency that did um they did uh, they, trying to get donations for like the police force and the firefighters and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically it was telemarketing. <laughs> basically mm-hmm. she got on there and then she got me on there. And mm-hmm. after we were both working there, then we were able to get an apartment. And so I went from being homeless at 16 and then transitioning into a home again where um up until I was 16 I always had my grandmother so even though my home life with my parents was unstable my grandmother was and and my grandfather uh, by extension were um a stable source of of love and and protection you know at home <laughs> uh mm. but you know at 16 I, I made that decision I said okay I'm gonna go and and live with mom and and I tried to make that work <laughs> and uh, when it didn't at 17 I was able to stay with my father but only for a short period so I quickly transitioned from his house um, graduated high school and moved in with um, a woman I knew down the street um, she was a few years older than me she was married but she had a spare bedroom and I had So she she let me rent the room. I was not on the lease. um, And at any point, had they said, get out, I would have been forced to leave. Um, And it was months before I turned 18. So I didn't have a whole lot of options. But she wasn't charging me an exorbitant amount. So I was like, 
I'll make it work, you know? Mm. Okay. Um, once I turned 18, I knew I could uh, start looking for options that were more suitable to me. Um, what were those options, by the way? Well, um, I started looking at actual apartments that I could rent, which were none, because Mm. you can't rent a place on your own at 18. I mean, even if you're working full time, I was working full time as a shift manager at McDonald's. And I had a second job because I had gone back to work for the telemarketing agency. Mm. Then, (laughs) even with those two jobs, I was struggling to find a place of my own. So I ended up leaving um, the place with the woman and renting part of a studio um, across the way from uh, a a co-worker. And she Mm. and I lived together for a few more months. And then I bounced around again and found another place to rent. Um, and I, I use the word rent very loosely because I was not renting. I, I was sleeping on a couch. I was using a floor. I, I didn't have belongings. There was nothing to come with me. Um, and I bounced around like that from place to place for probably five or six more homes before I finally decided that what was a good idea was for me to go back to school, get a more stable job, and find a place. And I finally realized that there was this option for renting a room. And if you found a homeowner that you can rent a room from, you could sign a lease and have that security. And so that's what I did. Um, I went through the college to find a place and I, I ended up signing a lease. And that was the first time I had a place that was really my own. Um, and even then, I didn't have furniture or anything. I didn't buy anything for the place that came furnished. It was just a, a little studio um, that I could come to and from, go to school and go to work. And that's all I wanted, you know, for a while. <laughs> and well, let then, me tell you. Okay, what I'm yeah. doing, I'm sorry. What I'm doing now is I'm on Zillow. Um, and I plugged in uh, the the big county of Metro Atlanta on Zillow, and I'm just sort of looking at some of the rents. And the reason I'm doing that is I have a really good idea about what people make in this town. Yeah. Uh, what the average person might make. Mm-hmm. And what I want to do is, okay, not to interrupt, but so here's a studio for $17.86 a month. Yeah. Wow. Now, the average normal job wage in this town is approximately, if you're lucky enough to find it, be about you know, one of the weird things about the post-pandemic world is the wages have gone up a little bit. So it'd be about 36 to uh, maybe, you know, 36, 40,000. Right. But still, like, you're still talking. There's there's still people in this town that make about 24,000 a year. Oh, absolutely. So. You know, and this is a studio for fifteen twenty-five. I'm looking at right here. Mm-hmm. 
So we're, it's ridiculous. You know, yeah, no, it is. I was for the studio. I was paying four fifty, and that was my half. Um, mm-hmm. In in the town I was in, um, it wasn't as expensive as somewhere like L.A. or San Francisco, but it was certainly more expensive than the two bedroom house I was renting for six hundred dollars a month, or the three bedroom apartment I was renting for eight fifty an hour away because there was a place an hour away where I could rent for that. The thing was, I also, I couldn't live there. I couldn't work there. There was no future there. Mm. So I needed to be in the larger town in order to have any sort of prospects, especially after I got pregnant. (laughs) Mm. And that happened after I decided to go back to school and I had the little studio apartment and you know I lived there for about nine months before I met the man who would then become my husband Mm -hmm. um and yeah I mean and then I was willing to let it all go I was like oh yeah I don't I don't need to finish school right now I'll do it later I'm gonna have this baby I don't need to I don't need to keep this apartment. I'm going to let it go and go live with this man who will become my husband and and whatever. (laughs) Right. You you know, bad decision after bad decision. Um, The only good thing that came out of that was my daughter. Now you're not, you told me before, you're not currently married to the father of your daughter. No, he passed away. Okay. All right. No, my husband now is is a much better person. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm I'm sorry for your loss. Um, uh, don't be. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, wow. Here's something I never would have thought. What? Um. So I googled my actual county, uh, Metro Atlanta. If you if you're not aware, is spread. You're not aware. Why would you be aware? My best friend is from there. <laughs> Get out. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, for the for the for the foreigners in the audience, uh, "Get out" is an American idiom. It means, uh, what would you say? Uh, no, really, nah. Uh, <laughs> for real. Right, 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 right. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, I would not have thought that uh, my county was much less in rent than than Fulton. I would have thought it was less, but not this much less. Yeah. You know, so but it's still up there. It's still not cheap by any stretch of an imagination. Right. Um <laughs> You know what's funny and what always gets me is that it's significantly cheaper to own than to rent except when you consider you know fixing costs depending on the how old your building is and whether or not you're handy but just if you if you calculate the cost to own a building based on the 30-year mortgage and the amount you put down and all of that your monthly expense comes to a significantly lower rate than what than what you're paying for the same thing when you rent well, the thing, I mean, not to get too politically theoretical on you, but I mean, the reason that is, is because the one thing our Congress did do and has done for years is they, they want home ownership in a society. Like, 
That's well, they, they may say they want home ownership, but in actuality, they've made it impossible for anyone that's not, if not high middle class to wealthy to afford a home. Because just, right. just saving up the money for the down payment is prohibitive. Well, what's fascinating to me is, like, I was watching, what was I watching? Uh... I was on YouTube the other day and I was watching Cribs. I was watching like that, that MTV show Cribs on YouTube, but from like, like 20 plus years ago. And you had, you know, celebrities living in million dollar houses, which, you know, 20 years ago, a million dollar house looked like a million dollar house. <laughs> right yeah th- these days you know some of these houses it's amazing what it's stupefying yeah. what that what some of these houses cost depending on where you are the the costs are yeah. absolutely ridiculous it's it's simply i don't know it's baffling it's, it's just it's, baffling well, to me, um, and I'm happy the, the, you know, happy. I'm The movie industry is moving to Atlanta. And that comes with certain benefits, I suppose. You know, maybe cultural benefits or we'll see. I don't know. But one thing it does do is drive property values up. <laughs> it does. It definitely, definitely does, does. That's one thing it does do. Um, but, yeah. 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 So I don't know. Okay. So keep continue on with your. Uh, I'm sorry. You're okay. You're okay. Do you have any questions about what I've said about so far? Okay. So yes, 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 yes. Um. So this was in. Where were you? Do you want to say? I was in Southern California, um, Kern County. Um. I went. Uh. Well, yeah, I, I kind of bounced around all of Kern County, um, a little town, big town, little town again. <laughs> so, yeah, most of it occurred there, um, though I did I did struggle in Utah for a short period. Mm. Yeah, and this was back in 2004 was when it started. I graduated high school. No. That would be a lie. 2004, I was 16. So I moved in January of 2004. And in 2005, January of 2005, I finished high school. So from there till today. My child was born in 2007. Yeah. Okay, so your child was born in 07. Um, so do you know, uh, do you remember what the, what the cost of an apartment was in Kern County? Yeah. Um, I remember when I was, uh, renting the room, the, the, it it was renting a room, but we called it a studio. It was a very nice place. I loved it. Uh, that was 300. The um, studio I was renting with a co-worker 
uh, upstairs. It was more like a loft. I believe we were paying between eight and nine for that. Though she may have been upcharging me for the utilities we were using because she wasn't charging me anything for utilities. There was no separate bill. Um, excuse me. Um, and then there was a two bedroom apartment that I knew of that was going for seven fifty. Um, I knew that because uh, <laughs> once upon a time they they waved away my rent money that month. They knew I was having a hard time, and uh, and said, "Wait, this place is only seven fifty a month, and we can afford it." <laughs> I work for the ice cream factory. <laughs> they were so nice. They really were very nice couple. They were getting married, but uh, she worked for the ice cream factory. He did something else. <laughs> And and that was her excuse. She she told me not to worry about it that month because she worked mm. for the ice cream factory. Okay, mm. the ice cream factory is that a is that a shop or? No, it was it literally a, the factory for the dryers. I think dryers or Briars ice cream brand. Briar Briars ice cream. Yeah. Yeah, that one. Briars um, ice cream. Yeah, I actually knew a lot of people who had worked there um, throughout my time in Kern County, but uh, oh. she was one of them, one of the nicer. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was seven fifty. dollars uh, After my child was born, I rented a two-bedroom. Um, it was part of like, a duplex. And so we had the front, and then there was a wall connecting it to the back with a back entrance. But that place cost us $800, and it included utilities. However, it was in the worst part of town for a Black person. So being a black person in that part of town meant I was pretty often in danger. Staying home alone in the evenings was a dangerous situation for me. Um, so I, I was very eager to leave there. Um, okay. So we, I had married the man that was the, the uh, father of my child at that time. Um, well, he was, I mean, he, he was the father of my child all the time, but he, he was with me and we were married at that time. Gosh, this sounds so silly to say. Um, anyway, he and I decided that uh, we should probably leave Kern County. Um, and he had recently found out that um, there was a man who might have been his biological father. And if we went out to Utah, then he might get a chance to form some kind of a bond with him. So we gave up our place. Okay. He gave up his good paying job. And out to Utah we went. Um, and we slept in a spare bedroom of his family members who hated me, which is another thing I was not expecting. Um, they didn't like that the child was there. They didn't like me. They didn't like that we didn't know their rules. Um, and it wasn't long before they were, you know, threatening to kick us out. And I don't know if my partner had done something at that time or because he was very um, secretive about things. He was, I mean, again, when I say he was not a good person, I mean it. Um but he was very secretive about things. So for all I know, there could have been a reason for them wanting us out. But at that time, I only knew that they weren't being friendly toward us. So um, we packed everything up late one night and um, 
I drove the 12 hours back from uh, where we were in Utah to Kern County. Um, I dropped him off at his father's house. I drove to my grandmother's house and she said, sure, you can sleep on my couch. And we figured that out um, until I was able to get a job and save up enough to get a place. Um, so that was another three or four months of, uh, you know, sharing a very small space with a too large family. Um, once I was able, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I said, huh, like, oh, oh. Huh, like. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so it was my grandmother, my younger brother, and my younger sister at that point all in it. They had a three-bedroom house, but, um, everyone was older, and there was no room for everybody, you know, and then me and this kid randomly show up, um, right. in, and this is 2008, uh, spring of 2008, so uh, I got a job as a cashier, and after a few months um, of, you know, earning my stripes, I met a regular ca um, customer who came into the, who, to the convenience store all the time, and he happened to have a property he was renting, and he liked me, so he rented it to me for 600 a month, and that was a two-bedroom, uh, one-bath house. And you, I mean, that was a steal. And it was, it was not in great condition. It's not like I was moving into a beautiful manicured place. I mean, it was falling down. It was probably built in the fifties, you know, but it was good. It was solid. It kept me out of the rain. It was, you know, it was home and the bills were reasonable. And his big ask was that I tried to tend the yard and I am terrible with yard work so eventually he got frustrated with that and would just come over and do it himself but other than that it was not so bad um and I was able to live there for yeah, just when, over a year when you say you just said like keep you out of the rain when you say keep you out of the rain, do you literally mean keep you out of the rain or, or what do you mean? I mean, I was always afraid of what would happen. I was always afraid because yeah. Um, yeah. it was it was during this point that, you know, I I knew my grandmother couldn't afford to, like, keep us. She couldn't take care of us. You know, mm. um, I come from a very poor family and that meant I had to pull my own weight. It meant that yeah. she had to know that us being there wasn't going to be a burden. She had two other kids to take care of, you know? And yeah. I had chosen to go off, get married, and have a baby. That meant that my husband should have been taking care of me, and I should have been taking care of myself and my child um, in her mind. And uh, while she also believes, you know, family should be there for each other and should stick it out... I don't know if she, I don't know what she thought really, you know, I, I feel, it was just I feel like I, I feel like I haven't asked the obvious question and I see, I see you nodding your, you just nodded your head. Uh, so, cause I can hear some of my listeners right now in, you know, in the none too distant future asking me, well, ask the lady, ask the nice lady what her husband was doing the whole time when she was marginally housed. 
When um, we got back to Kern County and I dropped him off at his father's and I went back to my grandmother's, he decided that his best bet was to stay with his dad for a while. This, I know now, was the first step to him leaving the marriage. He spent the during the time that I was finding a job, finding a house, getting all of that established, he was um, finding a girlfriend and then finding another girlfriend and then finding some gonorrhea and then clearing up that gonorrhea. Um, And yeah, so that was what he was up to. He was working for a coroner late at night who used um, large amounts of uh, cocaine and he used a little bit of that. So that was part of what he was doing. He just wasn't being a very good man. Once I had secured housing, he decided that he would come and live with me and um, get a job in the oil fields, which is the main industry of Kern County. And uh, when he, he managed to secure an oil field job based on my connections, he then decided that he was done with me and we would need a divorce. So he, you literally, you honest to God, you you literally think he's basically using you um, pretty much. Oh, 100. We, yeah, 100 okay. percent. He he was not okay. with me because he loved me at any point. Um, I think mm-hmm. that he was with me because it was something to do. And then I got pregnant and he was like, oh, okay, so now I have to marry her. And then he realized that he didn't have to be married to me. And he was like, oh, okay, never mind. You know, Um, I I have this other place now and this is okay with me. Um, And and our separation was was not great. I tried very hard for things to be okay. He decided that um, a life of abuse and stalkerdom was more his style. So he went that route. Um, And then uh, we found out he died in November. So, yay. Was he he stalking you or was he stalking? Yeah, he stalked me for several years. Um, after I found out he had been uh, abusing my child, um, yeah. he stalked me for several years after I had his rights removed and went through the whole court battle and all of that. So, so abusing his own child, I mean, abusing his own child. Yes. Okay, so, right. Um, okay. Wow. Um, okay. So let's, I just, I'm sorry, I had to ask that question because I could literally hear. That's okay. Like, like I could go into the future and hear people say that. <laughs> um, yes, when we got back to Kern County, he yeah. left to go stay with the dad he had grown up knowing as his father. Because in his head, he had two dads. There was the one in Utah and the one in Kern County. So um, we left the one in Utah to come back to Kern County, and he went to stay with him. Okay. 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 So at some point, okay, were you ever outdoors? Were you ever? I I lived in my truck. That was the closest I got to to physically living outdoors. Um, We. 
I I had gone through a breakup that was pretty bad. Um, he had been. I don't know how to talk about him. Because I don't think. I don't think what he did was intentional. But I do think it was manipulative. Mm. So, you know, that's just something I really struggle with there. Almost like you didn't didn't know any other way to be. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But regardless, um, when we broke up for good, he said, "I, I can't have you here anymore then. And it was the only place I lived. I was like, oh, so can I have some time to move? And he was like, I can't have you here. And so we packed up what we could and uh, left. Um, I would park in the Walmart parking lot at night. And my daughter would crawl into my lap. And I'd cover her up. And we would fall asleep. And the next morning, I would um, take her to... My my biological mother's house, which is where my grandmother was staying, and my grandmother would let us in, and I'd get her ready for school and take her down to the bus stop so she could go to school, and then I would go to school. Um, I was taking an early morning uh, physical education class, so I would go in and do my PE class and then shower. And that's how I would be able to go for the rest of the day. Um, I'd be able to be clean that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would bathe at my gra- at my mother's. Um, we did that for, I want to say, three or four weeks where we lived in the car. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know. I It may have only been, yeah, it may have only been three weeks. I'm honestly not sure. Because what happened is the day that he told me I needed to leave, I called my biological mother. She had just bought this house, this three-bedroom with a large other area and a garage and all this big area. And um, I said, can I, can I come stay with you? Mm. And she said, we don't have the room. And I don't think she thought that he was really going to kick us out. And so when he did and we were really on the streets, I don't think she took it seriously at first, which is part of why we were there for as long as we were. And then she saw that we were consistently coming to her house to have the the showers and to eat and to prepare food and stuff and then leaving in the evenings and just not sleeping there she I think it sort of hit her and she was like oh they really do need somewhere to be and so she let me move into the garage now the garage was unfinished of cement floor no heating or cooling this was summer in a desert so it wasn't a fun place to be but at least it wasn't my car in the of the night where anything could have happened you know um i was Mm. always afraid that the police would come and and take my child from me so when we slept slept i always made sure to cover her completely so that if anyone was looking in the window they wouldn't see a child um that's nuts to have to go through that in your head well, I was I also made sure, you know, I parked in certain places. I only went to the Walmart that had a really big cliff 
on the back side so that I could back my truck up and see if anyone was coming. Um, I made sure to park in the this one particular corner because if you get blocked in by, you know, two vehicles, that they, I mean, you're fucked. You could end up fucked that way. And I didn't want anything bad to happen. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I took all of these precautions. Um, but anyway, so eventually she let me stay in her garage temporarily. And I was already um, seeing my current husband. And he he had graduated from school and he was trying to get a job. And he ended up getting, I think, two at the same time. And with both of these jobs at the same time, he was able to afford a two-bedroom apartment. And he, he was like, hey, do you want to move in with me? You know, we'll get this two-bedroom apartment. And I said, I was going through a lot right then. I had just been um, mm. diagnosed with a lot of my mental illnesses and I had lost my job and, you know, I was ending this relationship and I was just like, I don't know, I don't know where this one is going. And I told him, I said, as much as I want that to happen, I don't know if that's smart because I have no income and I have no way to pay you back or no knowledge of when I might be able to pay you back. Mm. for everything you're about to spend on me mm. and he he basically said don't worry about it and it was really weird and I was insecure and unsure about everything but I kind of said okay and he made it clear that I didn't have to share a room with him that we weren't moving in with each other for that reason it was just a way to get me out of a bad situation at my mother's a a worse situation living on the streets, mm. you know, and he, that's where he was. And mm. um, it was a very sweet thing of him to offer. And so we started looking at places and one opened up that just happened to be perfect. It was seven fifty a month and a little two bedroom place. Uh, mm. And so we snapped it up and moved in there. And now <laughs> we're married in Canada. <laughs> How do, okay. So, that's a whole separate how did you end up okay let me say a complete <laughs> sentence here let me be okay because we're not just having a conversation um yada yada okay. yada isn't sufficient <laughs> how did you go from kern county to vancouver island well, um, my partner is Canadian, so that really helped. Um, he's a citizen, and uh, when the election was happening, um, we looked at each other and we said, we don't like where this is going, um, the 2016 election. We said, we don't like where this is going. If, um, if Trump is elected, we're going to have to leave. And when Trump was elected, we decided we should leave. So, um, you know, that was November. And by May, we were up here. And uh, the first week of June, he came up with all of our stuff. And we found the place we live in now. And we live here. <laughs> and it works. Um, that's it. It was literally that simple. It was just making the decision and, and then showing up because he was because he's a citizen. 
um, it made it easier for me and I could apply and, you know, just kind of go from there. And so I did, I applied for permanent residency and I got that taken care of pretty quick. And now I'm looking into uh, becoming a citizen myself. Um, mm-hmm. So then they can never deport me and I'll be here forever. <laughs> oh, that's, well, there was a smile there. I mean, there, there was a smile. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a good place. I like it here. Yeah. I mean, I've talked to folks in Canada, not just you. And I got to say, yeah, I think, um, you know, and so. Okay. Um, what are some things like what are what are some things you could have done differently? To, to not be in your, well, to, to not have been in that situation. Well, I can say that right there places the blame on me okay. as if I, I had done something that caused this. When in reality, I was in a relationship that was not sustainable. We had already tried to make it work we had stayed apart and gotten back together I was trying to help him because he was struggling with his mental health and it turned into this manipulation game that is abuse and I had to get out of it I had to get away from that Mm. um when he realized that I wasn't going to come back and be a part of that relationship. He wanted me out. I don't think there was something. I mean, I could have played the game for longer. I could have shut up and took it. I could have Mm. lived that life of sadness, but then I still would have been in the same situation. Um, When I, when I was bouncing around and unable to keep a job or settle, it was because I have bipolar disorder. I was constantly rapid cycling and Mm. anywhere I went for help told me, no, I, Mm. I could not get a therapist. I could not get anyone to understand me or to, to really sit with me to talk about what meds worked. You know, since I came to Canada, I I came here four years ago this year and Mm. I've been stable for three of those. The only reason I wasn't stable the first year is because I wasn't going to their doctors yet. Yeah. It's a massive change when you're able to go and get the help you need. You know, if I had at 18 been able to go to a doctor and say, hi, this is what I'm struggling with. My brain doesn't work. I can't focus on anything and there are days when I can't get out of bed and there are other days where I'm awake for six days straight because that's what my mania does to me and if they had seen that and said this is called bipolar disorder take this medicine you'll feel better it will fix the way your brain works I mean my my entire life could have been different yeah and I also I think a part of it is that I did come from an incredibly poor family. 
I came from an unstable background. And that's part of it. I, it's not like I had a family to fall back on every time, you know? Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, I kind of saw that as far as with the mental health. And, like, to me, the one thing I think, I do a podcast on COVID, and I'm going to cut an episode in my podcast this week on COVID. But um, what I'm learning about Delta, that's Delta COVID, is we're going as a country, we're going to have to talk about it. We're going to have to talk about our, our healthcare priorities because, you know, if the percentages are right and the contagion percentages are right and the what you know the infection and the health outcomes are right you're just going to have a whole lot of sick people and it's going to a whole lot of very sick people and you know and i, I mean i feel like that's going to be the day of the moment of reckoning if I not think... something else <laughs> I think that the Delta variant is going to make a lot of people sick, and it already is. Um, It's making a lot of people sick who have spent a huge portion of this pandemic swearing that it wasn't real or that it wasn't as bad as they thought. Um, I've read articles from doctors saying people flat out call me a liar when they say when I tell them what they're suffering from is COVID. That they they don't want to hear it they refuse to acknowledge it and if that's what they're dealing with and that's what they're they're going through um if that's the level of disbelief that we're struggling with you're right it's going to be a huge day of reckoning um now i I definitely hope that uh that, that doesn't happen i hope that more people get vaccinated because everything I've been reading says that those who are vaccinated, like me and my family, will, if we do get it, it'll be less severe and the chances mm-hmm. of us getting it is even lower. Um, but mostly I worry for the children, the ones under 12 who yeah. aren't eligible. Well, the one the one thing I do want to say about the Delta COVID on, okay, wait, let me get this right. So I'm in the East Coast. It is 1057 at night on august the 7th of 2021 okay so all of this could change the day after tomorrow (laughs) okay but right now um basically if you're vaccinated you have over a 99 percent chance of not catching covid and then if you catch it it's essentially like you're you've got the flu for the first time, they're right when they say that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but, but if you're not vaccinated, it's, it's really scary. It, right. It's scary, not just on your level, but on a society level. It's literally, so mm-hmm. please get vaccinated. Um, I have two siblings that apparently have not, and it breaks my heart, yeah. but what a, what, you know, all I can do is say I love you and I hope that you make this decision. Oh, I had a buddy who literally had his little kids uh, call his his people are very. Um, uh, they don't think COVID is real or they didn't think COVID was real in. Like June of 2020. Right. 
So he literally had his little kids. He called up all his relatives and had his little kids talk to every single one of the relatives. And he actually said, it's because I'm pretty convinced one of those people is going to die. And I've got little kids that I want them to have some kind of memory of these people. I mean, that's a terrible, that, terrible thing to have to do. That you know, yeah, no, for real. Um, Can, but, I mean, just imagine what your kids are going to remember from that. You know, what what was what's your memory yeah. from COVID? And then here they are, four or five year olds probably, and they say, "Well, I remember having to call all of my elderly relatives and I mean, and just talk to them because my dad was afraid they were going to die." Oh, oh, the other thing I forgot to say about the, the COVID or the Delta COVID is, um, and this is important. And the reason I'm saying this, not to step on your toes, the reason I'm saying this is some of these people, that might be the only podcast of mine that they hear. Mm-hmm. So Delta COVID is as contagious as the chicken pox. Yes. So think about, okay, in the analogy, you've got like a, a, a kindergartner who gives an entire school. The chicken pop. Yep. Okay. So think about that. You could have one person give an entire building Delta COVID. Very, okay. very quickly. And it's more contagious to the younger generations. That's something else mm-hmm. I was reading. That kids are getting it. And that scares me really bad because there is no protection for them. And even like small ones can't even wear a mask correctly. They, they don't know what they're doing. You know, and if people are refusing to wear masks, they think that everything is over and back to normal and it's not. I mean, look around and I just when I look around at all of these unmasked faces, I feel so sad and scared because I'm I don't want to be the person who has made someone else suffer. I don't want to be the reason that this baby can't breathe. You know, that stuff scares me. And I don't understand how other people don't feel the same way. When they look at the people around them, I don't see, I don't get how they can look at these people and not think, oh, I need to do something that can help keep, I can do something simple by wearing a mask or getting this vaccine that can help keep everyone more safe. The only thing, the only explanation that I really have from a societal standpoint is Nobody alive today really, or not nobody, but lots of people alive today don't really think, I'm going to have to decide, I'm literally going to put my life in my own hands as soon as I get up this morning. And I'm going to have to think, like, like, there's a lot of people in this country who don't make those choices, who aren't used to thinking like that. Right. Right. I mean, there's just a lot. And so you're not. And then if you think, well, COVID's not real because the president said it wasn't real or <coughs> COVID's not real because my whatever. Like, I don't know anybody that, that had this or whatever. But the truth is that, I mean, OK, I think I know, I forget how many people I know that died from it. But I know I know quite a lot of people from high school and some people at various stops in college that, that died from it. I don't know how many people it is right off, but this is yeah. Well, I, I would think with your with the area you're in, absolutely. It's well, probably a few. 
I'm actually in the most COVIDy county in in the at one point. It was the most COVIDy county in in America. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That yeah. had to have been really scary. It was interesting. Uh, you know, it was um scary. Uh, yeah, it was kind of. The short answer is yeah, <laughs> but it was it was a weird scary because it wasn't like every day. It was like there was this creeping dread that would just sort of, you know, like come over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. I don't know how. I mean, it wasn't like oh God, I can see Godzilla or I can see like the saber tooth tiger, but it was like. You know, I remember talking to an older gentleman who was, uh, he was younger during the AIDS crisis. And I think I talk about him in my podcast. He was gay. And um, he told me a story that, like, these people in his apartment started dying. And he didn't know, like, nobody knew it was AIDS. Like, nobody knew it was AIDS. Like, nobody knew what AIDS yeah. was. And, but, like, these people just started dropping dead in his apartment building. And, you know, he was 20-something years old in 1977 or 78 or whatever. And he thought, I don't know why they're dying, but I don't want to be here. Because right. I, I don't know what it is. <laughs> right, could but be anything. He, he ended up going to Montana, but <laughs> you know, it, it felt kind of like that. Like, like this, you know, I remember coughing and thinking is I remember Googling cause I have asthma. So I would cough and like, I was Googling like, like what, <laughs> what, <laughs> one of the symptoms of a cough, what kind of cough is it? What kind of, what are we talking about? Cough. Yeah, yeah. I I would go with my friend to the store and anytime she would like react at all, any sort of guttural sound, it's not COVID, it's not COVID. And I'd have to tell her, nobody thinks it's COVID, you're fine. You nobody. are fine. But everybody thought it was COVID. Everybody thought it. No. <laughs> oh god. Uh, or like like my sister, um, my sister's a nurse, and they call her the vein whisperer at her job. Oh, like, yeah? They call her the vein whisperer at her job. So she was out, you know, helping to treat COVID patients, and she would talk about, you know, this is what this looks like, and the, you, you have hazmat, you know, when the funeral home folks come. And even now still, like, when the funeral folks home folks come, they come in hazmat suits. Right. Wow. Right. I mean, well, and, okay. So the other thing about COVID that we need to talk about that I've talked about on my podcast is COVID is because it's so new, it's evolving. Yes. So like, for example, there's, there's two variants of COVID that people have now uh-huh. that not enough people have for, for medical people to know what it is, like what the, what it is basically like there's lambda and and uh theta lambda and theta covid and there's not enough of patients of that 
where they can look at character, where they can isolate characteristics enough to be able to tell people. Now, again, hang on. This is at 11.06 p.m. in the East on August the 7th. Now, if you're listening to this in a month or two months. Clearly every, if you're listening to this in three (laughs) days, your information is outdated. Just understand that by the time you're listening to this, this this is no longer accurate. (laughs) Well, Well, maybe not because I might. I might really just throw this on the feed. True. Now. True. I just, I know that, yeah. like, the things with Delta variant changed so quickly. And even just, like, the rules with schools and whatnot change overnight. Overnight, you're getting different rules. Um, oh, for sure. Up here, we're getting different, like even restrictions on traveling and stuff, uh, whether or not we're wearing masks indoors or not, whether or not it's even suggested is changing day by day. Um, I think part of it is political, you know, desires. Yeah. Part of it it is just unknowing. Part of it, I think is like, actually I heard this on a podcast I listened to. Um, Part of it, is they want to model good behavior for the people that don't think COVID is real. But see, my, my question about that is if you don't think COVID is real, you're going to be more scared by the masks than anything else. Like you're, you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know because I don't know. Um, I, I feel like they should be afraid, not of the masks, but of what happens when you don't wear one. Because what happens is scary. Being intubated is scary. You know, not being able to breathe on your own, feeling like you're drowning. You just said you had asthma. You have asthma. I have asthma. Yeah. When I when I would try to run in PE and then that that feeling would happen and I, I couldn't breathe and I would, I would go down and I'd be fumbling for my, my inhaler, trying to get it in. Oh my God. J- just right now I can feel it. I, and I can, I'm getting scared, you know, that feeling of not being able to function anymore of knowing your body is, is losing. And, and that's so scary. Yeah. I, I had a right and proper asthma attack. Um, few years ago now and that was terrifying yeah that right and proper asthma attack where i was literally where literally like let's all go to the emergency room like let's go to the emergency room yeah (laughs) it wasn't anything an inhaler could get it was like you know this is for real i went and had my testing done last year and uh, they put me in a booth and were having me do the breathing tests to induce an asthma attack. And it worked. <laughs> and that was pretty scary, too. And they were trying. I'm, I'm sitting inside a hospital and they were trying to make it happen. So I knew I was safe and it was still scary. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. It's honestly, it's. You know, it's like 
I tell my friends all the time, you know, I, my friends are always talking to me. They're always like, Hey Ben, uh, what do you know about COVID today? You know? <laughs> and then like some of them, depending on how, where they are on the food chain, like where they are on the friend list or whatever. I'm like, I tell them more mm-hmm. and we, we can have that. We have that relationship. So we have a longer conversation. And one of them said to me the other day, he said, Jesus, Ben, you, you just walk around with this knowledge. This is just things, you know, about coke, like Jesus. <laughs> and I said, you know, I miss the nineties too. I really, really do. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but, um, good Lord, um, (laughs) well, I wish you the best of luck, and things are going good for me now, you know, um, getting with this guy really gave me the motivation to figure my shit out, (laughs) um, there's something amazing about being told that I had value, even though I wasn't stable and giving, he helped me uh, by giving me the freedom to figure out what was going on and to, to have access to professionals and so on and so forth. And Mm -hmm. now, now that I have that, I, I get to be stable and I get to function inside the world I can't imagine what would be what my life would be like if I had never gotten this help. And I really, really hope that anybody who's hearing this can understand that the life I'm leading now would never have been possible if if I didn't get mental mental help, if I didn't have the help of my husband, if I didn't have the support of you know the government had support programs that i i was able to get disability for things like Mm -hmm. that if these if these supports which are socialism even in america guys if disability didn't exist i never would have been okay i never would have gotten to a point where i i could you know drive or afford my medicines or anything like that and no one deserves to live like that i have a lot to give this world um if given the chance what's amazing to me is like 40 million people in in 2009 and like i can just be in my community and just go where i go and i can see with the naked eye more homeless people out than i've seen ever Mm -hmm. living here and so if I'm looking at 40 million people homeless in 2009, what are we talking about in 2021, honestly? Oh, yeah. It's and, absolutely ridiculous. And and the thing like that keeps hitting me is like, you know, you got people that are never going to be right after this. They're, they're never going to be right. And I, I say, all, I, I said it today. I, I said it today to a friend of mine. If you want to live in a better world, you have to vote. You know, and. You know, 
we should run down all this. I mean, if you don't have if you don't have a stable address in this country, you can't apply for a job. Hardly you you can't. Uh, uh, first of all, you need the internet to even get a job. Now. Oh yeah, so, this idea that you <laughs> it's a I've I've seen it said I'm too poor to find a job. And this idea makes people laugh. No, you're not. You're ridiculous. I was having a conversation with my sister the other day. She says, I need a minimum $30 an hour to work. Because if she's not making $30 an hour, she cannot afford childcare. The cost that uh, she has to pay rent for for her chair, all of the supplies she needs because she's a hairdresser, and things like rent, food, (laughs) the necessities of life. Okay, so a minimum she needs to make is thirty dollars an hour, but she's a hairdresser, and nobody wants to pay her that. Right. I mean, it's ridiculous. And then you know, and I can hear it now. I, you know, so don't go be a hairdresser. All right, okay, fair enough. Okay, do me a favor though. Be honest. When she's setting up to be a hairdresser, when you're when you're training these people, be honest. Tell them what pays and what doesn't. Just, mm-hmm. just do that. If if you're gonna, okay, okay, you're right. You're right. We we in America don't pay for social services for the most part. So okay, f- fair enough. Do this. Be honest with people. That would <laughs> be nice. What pay? Like when you're when you're that kid, that 16 year old kid, you know. I want to be a hairdresser. Okay, here's what a hairdresser makes. Here's how you have to, here's how much you have to make just to get off the ground. And what gets me what gets me is that she's actually talented enough to deserve that amount, to mm-hmm. deserve more than $30 an hour. She does braids and intricate styles mm-hmm. and she's she's very good at like hair repair and she's specialized in all of these things so that her work is worth more than $30 an hour. I want people to think about what they're asking for and what they're paying for and then what they expect. Would they be willing to expose themselves to the harsh chemicals involved with dyeing, straightening, relaxing, whatever it is they're doing to their hair? Would they be willing to expose themselves to, you know, uh, the not just the fumes and not just the chemicals on their skin and not just the dyes on their hands, but, you know, everything, everything, the, the harsh attitudes from people who may not like the way you fringe their bangs, even though in a week they're going to look entirely different. You know, are they going to put themselves through that kind of shit for $10 an hour? Are right. they going to put themselves through all of that? For the same price and for when you go to a salon and you pay $10 for the haircut versus the salon, you pay $50 for the haircut, which haircut is better? Which haircut do you appreciate having more? When you look at yourself in the mirror, which one gives you more confidence? Because in my experience, I'm going to go to the woman who charges me more because I know she knows how to work with my hair. Well, yeah. Yeah, I know I know that in my instance, my experience has been better. I also know that when my partner goes and <laughs> pays $10 or $20 for his haircut, he comes back with lopsided hair, and I'm not doing it. 
Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just to me, like I say, I mean, at this point, you know, I'm not really into, I mean, I am, but I've kind of I've decided, okay, America really doesn't want to have complicated government programs, for better or worse, and I think worse, right? So the least you can do is be honest. I think that if the United States understood what was being offered, instead of all of the shenanigans that are constantly pulled, all, you know, the semantics over over phrasing all the time, and just looked at the actual content of what people were proposing, I think a lot more people would be down for these social programs, even though they are far reaching. I think that when they look at countries like Canada and their insulin prices, I think people in America say, why can't we have that? And the answer is, it's because your elected officials won't let you. (laughs) And I think that when I think it's really, really simple because every other advanced country in the world has solved this. You know, they have universal health care. They have pharmacare or at least some versions of it. Um, you know, I, I go to the dentist for free now. That, that was something that was never an option for me in the U.S. I mean, you have, when you have 40 million people homeless in 2009, that's more people, by the way, than any state in the country. Ridiculous. That's insane. And they have more houses empty than they do homeless people owned by banks, which they have bailed out. And yet they refuse to help the homeless people and yet are willing to once again bail out banks. Um, The way that the United States sees fit to spend their their budget is very alarming to me. I think that I would much rather see the United States spend their budget on helping people. If they took even a portion of what they spend on the military, and and maybe they will as they as he, we are watching the Biden administration pulling people out of um, Afghanistan as as horrible as the consequences of that are currently and as they are becoming and as we will see them get worse. One of the upsides is less money being spent on the military and hopefully we will be able to transition some of those funds into programs for the unhoused and the underhoused into Mm. programs for uh education and and trade programs and jobs like his job program that he has promised we'll see and why not like why not subsidize somehow subsidize the minimum wage or 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 even just okay, even like bring in tax breaks to hire people. How about that? I mean, or even you know, and not even not even just hire them though. Hire them at a living wage. I, exactly. It would be amazing yeah. to see tax breaks for people who hire workers at a set living wage, plus things like universal basic income. That way, nobody needs to starve or worry about the basics of life. There's no reason for my sister not to be able to put her kid in daycare so that she can work full time when that's what everyone wants her to do anyway. You know? What is, um, 
do you know what the cost of the here is where she is where she is? Yeah, I, I do. Um, my best friend just signed her her person her small person up for a uh, school, and it is costing her over twelve hundred dollars a month for two days a week. That's essentially rent. I mean, I'm. That's more than rent in some places. I, yeah. Yeah, I've literally. I was just on Zillow just right now. That's literally rent. Right. If if my sister if my sister were to choose a smaller school than the one my friend is going to, um, maybe one run out of a house, she might be able to get it for seven hundred a month. When I was there and my child was seven, so seven years ago now, I was paying seven fifty, but it was a five day a week program, an all day program because it was during the summer, and we got a special deal. Because we were low income, and mm. it was still, I still paid seven fifty a month. So ridiculous! It is absolutely ridiculous. Um, yeah, that's that's life though. When you, the moment you decide to have a child, all of these extra expenses pop up, and nobody considers that, you know, and until it's too late. <laughs> And then you have the government who's like, well, keep a full time job. And you're like, I'm trying, but you're literally taking my entire paycheck to pay for the childcare that I have to pay for in order to have the job that you're taking all the money from. Yeah. I literally had a friend of mine um, quit his job just so he could look after the kid. Uh huh. And his, you know, and he actually said that, like, it doesn't pay. It, it makes no sense to actually throw my entire paycheck. Just right. about it, between gas and whatever else you're throwing. Once mm-hmm. you add a kid and then you add another kid. Oh, and, yeah. Right. And blah, blah. So he literally. So, like, he, you know. It was just crazy like that. Yeah. I had a friend, I have a friend, um, great guy for the first, I would say decade that I knew him, he, he worked at first and he had to stop working because he ended, he had a son, had a daughter, had a second daughter, and then inherited a fourth child. And with four kids after the, the first two, he was like, I don't know if I can afford to work and take care of two children because he was doing it alone. And then with, as the second two came, he just was like, okay, it's over. (laughs) I, I can no longer afford to work. And he was working in a, the main industry doing a good job, making good money. And he had to walk away from the job because he couldn't afford childcare. It was just cheaper for him to stay home, take care of the kids while he could. And then when they were old enough to stay home on, on, their own he was able to go back to work yeah and you think about i mean and if you and you got children that you're not reading to and you're not you know whatever else those kids aren't going to do well in school or as well as they could and so there's like a whole cycle here yeah yeah depending on on how much time and energy you have left to pour into those children it will determine what kind of life they lead. And I know that 
yeah. the times when I've been able to give my child more, she's done better. And the times when I'm I'm scared about someone coming to knock on my window at night because we're sleeping in a parking lot, I've done worse. You know, when I mean, I tried to make it fun, but there's only so much fun you can have in a parking lot, you know, right. even if you're reading by by light, you know, I mean, there's it, it's still not fun and it's still scary. And Does she remember your daughter? Does she remember the parking she was, lot? She was seven. She definitely remembers. She remembers the parking lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she remembers things down to when she was three. Pretty like she can tell me stories of stuff, and I'm like, can you not? <laughs> you just make me feel old. <laughs> I remember. I mean, like I remember part of my fourth birthday. Oh yeah. And I'm, you know, <laughs> so I just remember the cake. I mean, I remember the cake and a couple of the presents and things like that. But That's pretty they, cool. But they say like when you're four. Your your brain starts to cut on really, and you you're starting to make memories that are yours. Like you're starting to make, you know. Yeah, I think because she went yours. through a traumatic event when she was mm-hmm. just under two, that triggered mm-hmm. a memory starting process, and so she had that. But um, I I don't think it it caught everything. So yeah. she remembers the traumatic event. And then most of her memories pick up a bit later, sometime around four or five. And by seven, it's pretty stable. Yeah. Like they say certain traumatic memories, like are direct pathways to the brain or something. Like I forget exactly right now, but it's like certain traumatic memories are like you're having quicker pathways to certain places in the brain. Yeah, absolutely. Because your brain, basically, when something happens or a thought is formed, it forms a pathway in the brain. And every time you rethink that thought or that that you refill, um, fulfill that the the things necessary for that pathway to remake, it forms it deeper and deeper and deeper in your brain. So it becomes very easy. That's one reason that positive language versus negative self-talk, positive self-talk versus negative self-talk has such a significant impact. If you're continually telling yourself, I'm bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, then that's what your brain will go to. Just like in a Google search, you type I'm and your brain autofills bad. Instead, you have to challenge that i'm bad no i'm not i'm good i'm good i'm good i'm good you challenge that enough times your brain changes it yeah like um i had a a guest um and we're gonna do a thing again where we have it's like two people and and i just shut up and record but they're (laughs) they're internet uh security and privacy folks and they're going to have a conversation about stuff like that. But both of them independently of each other told me like your, your search history is dramatically dependent on even like where you live and, you know, like, oh, yeah. for, for example, like, I mean, this hit home recently. Like I had a whole conversation with somebody like a whole long conversation. I wasn't, it wasn't over a phone. There were phones in the room, but there was, it wasn't over a phone or anything. It was face to face conversation for about two hours. 
literally, literally the next day, literally hours within hours of that conversation in my Google news, the top four stories were about the conversation we just had. Absolutely. I was like, okay, I've seen this before, but I can't even imagine being somebody who's like relentlessly negative and you're having relentlessly negative conversations with people and your Google news is going to be like relentlessly horrible. Like just, right. You know, right. Right. All the time. <laughs> like my Google news is basically like tech reports and, and sports scores and stuff. And, but I imagine somebody's Google news would be like mass murder and, and, you know, terrible crap happening three doors down. Right. Can you imagine? <laughs> I cannot even imagine being that person and constantly having my algorithm feed me that. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's one of the reasons I do Happy Not Crappy is because then I get to spend most of the week looking up good news. And then my algorithm is flooded with good stuff. What is Happy Not Crappy? It's my podcast. I have two of them. And Happy Not Crappy is the good news podcast that allows oh. me to um to look up good news and then share it with everybody every week (laughs) yeah you don't want to talk to me on happy not crappy no (laughs) Uh, would you get very sad (laughs) no well one of my friends calls me the angel of death uh one of our big things is that we want to be able to Accept the negative, but acknowledge the good. We don't want to dwell in what's bad because we know it's there. We all know that there's bad stuff. Yeah. You know, it's the it's the fun stuff that's that, that we want to play with. Yeah. Well, I try to be a I try to be a really positive person, mm-hmm. um, especially now because I spend so much time looking at. COVID stuff and talking to the victims of the horrible disease. So I I, I try to spend uh, like That's a lot of time. That's got to be really hard. It's look, I've heard stories that are some of the craziest, like crazy. What what word am I trying to say? There's a couple stories that I can't release. Mhm. Because of reasons. Um. One of them I'm never going to forget. I'm literally never going to forget it. And it'll stay with me pretty much forever. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, and I had, to, I, I had to learn to get over the idea that I can convince somebody who doesn't believe this. You know? Yeah. Like, That's got to be learn. really hard. It was. <laughs> it still kind of is, but it, it was like, no, you don't understand. And I thought I could educate sense into people, and you can't. Not always. No. Sometimes you've just got to accept that that's where they want to be, <laughs> and they refuse to change or learn. You know? They refuse to. I don't know. For yeah, some reason, tough. yeah. For some reason, some people thought this was like they call it virtue signaling or something. And I'm like, 
okay, like me trying to save your life is virtue signaling. Good, got it, right? Understand? <laughs> you know? I don't. I mean, that's not virtue signaling, in my opinion. I mean, at least as far as I know, uh, virtue signaling is more like. Oh, no, no, I believe that this thing is true, but not doing anything about it. It's it's just like mm. performative allyship where we're like, yes, we we believe you. We we stand with you. And then they don't want to do anything. It's it, it's like the active Activision Blizzard shit where the the people at the top are like, we support you. We're on your side. But when it comes down to it, they're shutting everyone up and trying to do nothing. What was the 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 picture the uh, the rainbow colored bench, but it's the with the with the bars across it so that you had to sit on it instead of lay on it. <laughs> oh like, my god! I, I know you've seen this picture. No, I have not seen that. I'm so bad at memes. I don't see any of this, but I am not surprised. And I've seen like, benches like that, the ones that have either like just a small spike sticking up so that you could never you could never lay down but you have no problem sitting um blows my mind pisses me off i'm like why is it so bad that this person have a place to lay down you know what okay here's what i hope i really here's what i hope i hope that we get better as a society well we're seeing it in places like utah like, what do you mean? Well, in Utah, um, they actually have a program to give homeless people homes. Um, we're seeing, and in, in uh, the Netherlands, they have programs. And I think in other European countries as well. But those two in particular stick out in my mind as places where literally you become homeless and then you are given a home there with no stipulations. Um, and that's why I believe Utah's homelessness since the pandemic is only around 3000 people in the entire state uh, because wow. it's not a thing. You can you, you, they give you a house, they give you a home and they say, OK, then now if you want them here are some services. If you are, for example, struggling with addiction and you need help, here are some services. We're not going to force you to, into the services, but they're there if you want them. And in most cases, that's what people need. In most cases, when pre- presented with r- resources, they're eager to take advantage of those resources because it really does help. But when somebody's living on the streets and they can't shower before a work interview, they can't get that job and they will be passed over time and time again, no matter how hard they try. Right. So when we see places like Utah saying, no, we're just going to give everyone a house. That's the kind of programs we should be supporting and encouraging and calling about and saying, hey, Senator, why aren't you doing this in Georgia? Why aren't you doing this in California? And why aren't we seeing it in Canada? Um, When, we're seeing it in Norway and we're seeing massive success rates where the, the cost being spent on homelessness is so significant, so much significantly lower than the cost spent in countries that don't have programs like this. Um, I think that we should be asking our elected officials why we aren't doing these things, because A, the money it would save could be poured into other programs and B, why aren't we helping people? These 
homes are yeah. rights. Is it with Utah? Is it because I mean, okay, I why do you think it's because with Utah? What do you mean? That they're, that they're giving they're giving unhoused people homes. Oh, they saw that it, there was a need and decided to do something about it. Yeah. That's it. I think they saw the success of Norway's program and and said, we can do that. Um, I thought that mm. there was a city in Colorado that was also doing it, but I can't remember which one. Um, but I definitely know that, that Utah was doing well. And up until the pandemic, they were doing very well. And I honestly believe that they just they saw the need and said, we can do that. This is not hard. We have empty houses. We either they own them, the state, the um, local governments own them, the, the banks own them. Let's turn these places into useful locations for the homeless. So well, I, hope, I hope that catches on a lot more places. I agree. <laughs> I, I honestly do. I, I really, I honestly do. Um, because before the pandemic, I mean, I, I, I cite this number all the time. Uh, before the pandemic, um, it was like 34 vacant structures per homeless person in the country. Yeah. Um, and now I'm sure it's a lot higher than that. Oh, yeah. Even with I'm the eviction sure. moratoriums that were in place and now are not. Um, because actually, did did they bring that up? I didn't know. I don't know if if they ended up coming to a de- in a coming to a deal this week. I know that they did the eviction things did run out. The, I think well, both things are true. The eviction moratorium did run out, and they had. I think there's a new deal. Okay. Well, hopefully they did find some sort of something to keep people um, off the streets for longer because with this heat the way it is and the the wildfires fires burning everywhere you don't need more people out on the streets right now keep them in homes but like in my city in it in the city of my okay in the major city in my area it's like one in five people has been evicted mm-hmm mm-hmm which is, I mean, that that's 20% is, of your population. That's ridiculous. That's and here's what's insane about that. Mm-hmm. So it's been some years since Atlanta City proper has had what you want to call Section 8 housing or uh, there are no housing projects per se. Did mm-hmm. he? So it was all either Section 8 housing or. And that's been gone for years now. So that is, you're literally talking about people with jobs and apartments and mm-hmm. what, like you're, that's what you're talking about. And not, you know, I'm just saying. So well, you know. many people who had Section Eight, at least where I come from, had jobs. Um, I went, to, yeah. I worked with several people who were using Section Eight to supplement their household expenses because. They could not afford like like we were just talking about. You can't afford rent, childcare, food, the utilities, and everything else that comes up with it. Right. It's just too expensive. Yeah, it is. It is. And you know. Anyway. 
Well, <laughs> well, thank you, Nikki. You've been a you've been a lovely guest, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me back on. If anyone wants to hear from me, you can find me at rebelrev.co. Um, that is our website for Rebel Revolution, the podcast where we try to make a difference by challenging. Uh, privilege and bias, or you can find me at happy, not crappy. Um, that's crappy, not.com. And, uh, that's all good news. That's all good news all the time. <laughs> or on Twitter at, at, at uh, Hafner Nikki. Happy, not crappy. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That one's, that one's good. That one's funny. We have a good yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, hang on just a second. Let me, um, Unhook the recording.